this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is Lord Peter Hayne, a former British anti-apartheid leader and a cabinet minister. He served in the cabinets of both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown as Secretary of State for Wales and Northern Ireland, as Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and as leader of the Commons. He was also Europe Minister, Foreign Minister and Energy Minister. He chaired the UN Security Council and negotiated international treaties curbing nuclear proliferation and banning the conflict-inducing trade in blood diamonds. He earned a life peerage in 2015, and aside from politics as if they were time, he is a prolific author. He's written 20 non-fiction books, and today we're talking about his novel, The Elephant Conspiracy. It's the sequel to his 2020 novel, The Rhino Conspiracy. Peter, it's wonderful to have you back on Thank Monocle. You for having me on. Now, as we say, you have been a guest on this programme a couple of times before, and we've spoken a lot about your early life in South Africa, your anti-apartheid campaigning work, your career in the British government. All of that comes together, albeit in fictional form, in this book, The Elephant Conspiracy. And you've just wonderfully woven everything together. Now, this obviously comes off the back of the rhino conspiracy. So tell me about suddenly being sort of forced to write a second book, because the first one was did so well. Yes, the publishers, Muswell Press, so liked the first one and particularly wanted to know what would happen to the characters whom they liked, especially a young, the young heroine, Tondi. And so they gave me a year to write this, and I thought, crikey. (laughs) (laughs) The Rhino Conspiracy was a bit of a hobby. This one was full on. Mm. But I really enjoyed it. And, And listening to other thriller writers, it may be true, you'll know more about it than me, but when you write a novel fiction as opposed to what I'm used to writing, the plot sort of develops and it takes all sorts of unexpected directions. And so it was a joy to write, but also quite a lot of pressure as well. I can imagine. As the title implies, The Elephant Conspiracy, it's about wildlife, specifically poaching. But you make the connection here between politics, corruption, climate change. You show us that none of this exists in a vacuum. I'd like to start with poaching, though. How much of a problem is that in South Africa? Well, across the African continent, South Africa included, which is on the front line, it's an enormous problem. I was looking and include the figures in this book, though it's intended as a page-turner, which I hope you found it, not as some kind of dry, factual compendium. But there were 25 million elephants in the year 1800 before European settlers and trophy hunters started shooting them for fun. By the end of the century, the turn of 1900, the 25 million had fallen to 2 million. And there are now 400,000, and they reckon they'll be extinct by 2040. That's not very far away. So there is a real battle on the front line to protect wildlife. And in these safari parks where rhinos are hunted, where elephants are hunted, and increasingly lions too, there are war zones battles between poachers and very brave rangers who often lose their lives. Both sets of people lose their lives. So it's very serious indeed. Now, you've got the poachers who are probably the local people on the ground, often very poor, who are doing it for purely economic reasons. But actually, it's the people controlling them that are the problem. Yes, it is. It's the international crime syndicates that sit on top of these very poor guys, not to excuse them at all because it's grisly, bloody work that they're doing. Uh, killing rhinos, killing elephants, ripping their tusks and their their horns out and leaving them bloody wrecks of former regal animals. But 
they're really small beer. The big criminals are the ones sitting in China or East Asia, like Vietnam, and have got a whole network underneath them, protected by corrupt politicians. And that's is set the core of the plot is about the interaction set in South Africa between those two. But you could almost replicate this with any African country that has a lot of wildlife in it. Mm. I mean, because it is almost like a military operation. I mean, these are war-grade weapons. Often. They are. Drones, uh, very heavy armaments, sort of competing set of, of firepower because the poachers increasingly up their game militarily and it is it is paramilitary activity in many respects so the rangers have to protect themselves and the the safari parks have to erect even greater defenses drones are used a lot both to attack and to defend and a whole range of high technology in the Kruger National Park for example the biggest game park in South Africa and possibly in the world it's very heavily defended, and yet it's losing rhinos and elephants all the time. Mm. There is legislation, though, that's meant to protect it, and all sorts of schemes, like, for instance, in, in Zimbabwe, we had a scheme called Campfire, where you were meant to pay an amount to the local community in order to shoot a trophy, which was often a problem animal. That didn't work, ultimately, because of corruption. But there are schemes like that. Yes, there are, and conservationists are doing amazing jobs, amazing jobs, and the dedication of those conservationists is really, you know, mind-blowing and humbling as well. But it's a constant battle because it's like the drug trade, and it's on a scale of the drug trade or human trafficking trade or even the arms trade. The reason it's happening is people are prepared to pay for ivory, which is as gleaned from elephant tusks, prodigious amounts of money. And the same for rhino horns that ground down into powder and then used for aphrodisiacs, for cocaine substitutes. By the way, no scientific evidence that either of those things work, but <laughs> but for the rich elites in some of these East Asian countries, they're, they're a symbol of uh, elitism and uh, a status symbol. Now, state capture comes into this, and this is a, a phrase we've heard often associated with South Africa. And I wonder if you could just give us a, a bit of background on that. Well, under former President Zuma, who was in power for around 10 years, the state was looted and bent and twisted to be captured by his family, himself, and then his friends, his cronies, the Gupta brothers, originally hailing from India that settled in South Africa and were part of this looting operation, a big criminal enterprise. And a couple of them have now been arrested in Dubai. And there was money laundering on a big scale, and I've, I've actually gone into the money laundering side of it with a, a new character, a former a banking executive who stumbles upon this and decides to blow the whistle very bravely and suffers the consequences for it. And I became interested in not just the, the wildlife side of it and the state capture corruption side of it, which I helped expose under parliamentary privilege here in the House of Lords, but also the money laundering side, which I didn't really know anything about until I started delving into it. And I tried through the character named Joan Joseph, um, this fictional banking executive, to try and explain what's happened. That the money goes out of Joburg, Johannesburg, through HSBC or Standard Chartered or Bank of Baroda being the main global banks responsible. Then it goes to Dubai through their digital pipelines. Then it goes somewhere else often through front companies, shell companies, set up by the Gupta brothers. They are the real owners in the background, with the Zoomers as well in some cases. 
or very often, but that's concealed. So the money goes into these front companies and then is passed between them, maybe ends up in tax havens in the Caribbean, goes to Hong Kong, which was the other big money laundering centre used by the Guptas. And so what you have here is an industrial scale of corruption and money laundering, which all governments say they're against. Here in Britain, as in America, you've got pretty tough anti-corruption, anti-money laundering laws. But London's a centre for it. Not as big as Dubai and Hong Kong, but a lot of laundered money passes through here. Mm. So there's not enough being done by international governments to do this. But, you know, the plot, which is meant to to race the reader through, I I hope grippingly so, and I hope you found it so, reveals all of this as Mm. it unfolds. No, I mean, as you say, it's absolutely a page turner, but there's all this information coming at you too. And you kind of understand how things like this work without it being a a lecture. I mean, for instance, there's kind of passing reference to it, but it's very clear that this is what's going on. Things like wastewater becomes a huge problem in South Africa because none of these state facilities are maintained because that money is being siphoned off. Completely. And South Africa's got terrible wastewater and sewage problems at the present time because, as you say, the water system, one of the best in the world in the past, has been allowed to decline. The money's not been spent maintaining it and keeping it running properly and cleanly because they've just helped themselves to the the money that was allocated to the water supply. And that's happened across a range of public services. So South Africa, which in many respects is a first world economy, though a developing world society, is now assuming a dysfunctional form where you get power cuts, even in commercial centres like Johannesburg, water cuts as well, Mm. simply because the money's been looted that should have been used to maintain it. Now, Cyril Ramaphosa, the current president, is having all sorts of problems at the moment. This is to do with millions of dollars that were found on the back of his sofa, or stolen from behind his sofa, we're told. Uh, He says that this was money that somebody paid him for his own wildlife, uh, some kind of exotic cattle, I think. But he's just narrowly avoided impeachment. I wonder how long he can maintain the support of the ANC, given that they kind of sheltered Zuma for so long under similar circumstances. I wouldn't say there's similar circumstances at all. President Zuma has proven to be corrupt and looted the state on a prodigious basis, causing a damage to the economy of about a fifth of its national wealth. I mean, this was absolutely terrible in its impact on South Africa, and it's still reeling from it. Sir Ramaphosa had a robbery at his game farm. Now, I don't know why he has a game farm, but uh, he does. But he did make a lot of money as a businessman, legitimately. And and therefore, he's entitled to spend it as, as he wishes. He had a robbery which was then exposed some time later by one of Zuma's cronies, a corrupt individual who was part of the looting, in order to try and set him up. Now, the exact circumstances of this, where the millions of dollars in foreign exchange were hidden in sofas or not, who knows? Because the story came out from these corrupt sources. To his great credit, he's tried to clean up the system, battling against a still highly corrupt African National Congress, which would leave Nelson Mandela turning in his grave. And he's got, for example, the secretary general of the party in a situation now being prosecuted, suspended. So things are progressing at a painfully slow way. But I don't think you can compare him to Zuma in any sense. Although, you know, in this game farm episode, there's a lot of un 
explained and rather fishy sides to it all. Mm. Now, state capture, how does that connect to poaching? In this book, we have somebody who is a member of the government very much involved, pulling the strings. Yes, in, there's a character created, uh, the apparatchik, I've called him. I haven't named him Star for short as a nickname. And some people might think he bears a resemblance to a real-life character. Well, that's a matter for them because this is a work <laughs> of fiction. But he is in a very powerful position and he organises the poaching in order to keep enriching themselves. And one of the things about these guys is when they get on the corrupt gravy train big time, they just want to... It's like a compulsion. They just want to keep doing it. Mm. And in this case, he's organising poaching, transporting elephants to a particular venue which is presented as a wildlife park and then having them, not to spill the entire plot, but having them mm. grisly annihilated and their, their tusks uh, removed. So there's all of that going on. And the political corruption comes in because a lot of this poaching and the criminal syndicates that organise it would not be able to operate were it not for backhanders to corrupt politicians, mm. which is really how the whole state capture story worked in South Africa. I thought what was interesting was when it becomes apparent that what Starr has done is known, he's not really bothered about it because he thinks that this is his right. He doesn't really see what he's done wrong. And you write about how corruption is endemic, how people become inured to it themselves, but also how looking back at previous colonial regimes, people now just think, well, why shouldn't I help myself too? Yes, I've been intrigued as to why people, including Zuma himself, served 10 years on Roman Island and was in exile for quite a lot of his adult life. And why they then, having sacrificed so much in such a noble cause, led by Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tambo and others, that they then become like their former oppressors, who, by the way, were also corrupt, not on this transparently shameless basis, mm. which is a feature of the Zuma-Gupta period, where it's just so brazen, it's almost mind-boggling. But they were corrupt, and it's as if they're saying, right, it's our turn to rule. As the phrase goes, it's our time to eat. Mm. And we're going to enjoy ourselves. And what's wrong with it? Why shouldn't I enjoy the great fruits available to me if, the, if I can get them in a way that my former oppressors did? It becomes a kind of rationalisation for criminal behaviour on a prodigious scale. Now, climate change. You make the very valid point that wildlife and the decimation of wildlife directly connects to the climate crisis. Yes, it does. It both suffers from the climate crisis because wildlife has been decimated not just by poaching but by the climate emergency. But it also, the wildlife is part of this fragile, complicated ecosystem where each bit depends on each other. So the elephants, for example, as they move through eating an amazing amount of greenery, they then defecate, they leave berries which then grow into trees and bushes they clear paths for smaller animals, which in turn become prey for predators, which in turn perform other kind of uh, functions in this delicate lifestyle which we are wrecking as humankind, including through poaching. So it's all connected. Mm. Doing the research for this book and as the story unfolds, I became, as an author, 
and I hope the reader does, ever more aware how interconnected everything is. No, absolutely. It also connects to your life here as a British politician and your history here in British politics. There's a, a character called Bob Richards who I think does bear an uncanny resemblance to you. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment, Georgina. <laughs> um, but you talk about scheduling debates, about speaking in Parliament, about, about the kind of business of all of that, how that actually works. And you made reference earlier to talking about corruption under Parliament privilege. I found that absolutely fascinating and the way that it has to be very, very carefully planned. Yes, because you've got to choose your moments. If you're going to use parliamentary privilege, every member of parliament and every peer like me, every member of the House of Lords, when they speak, speaks under parliamentary privilege and a right established hundreds of years ago, which means you can't be sued. But it has to be, and most of the time you're speaking about things where this doesn't arise. But if you're seeking to expose something that hasn't been exposed before, you've got to exercise that right very responsibly. You can't you know, libel people. You can't tell untruths. You've got to be clear about your facts. But sometimes it's the only way to get something out. So both in the rhino conspiracy and in the elephant conspiracy, this character Bob Richards um, does use is asked to expose it in the British Parliament because the South African Parliament, which enjoys similar rights, there isn't anybody really to do it because it's a bit of a captured institution itself. Mm. But that's another story. So. That role is quite important and how he's able to do it, you know, you can't just get up and speak. You've got to find the right time to do it. It's got to be appropriate to the subject being discussed in Parliament at that time, whether a bit of legislation or a debate on a similar topic. You can't just get up on, on a health policy and suddenly talking about money laundering. It, it wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. And in your own career, you have done so much to, to change policy on all sorts of things. For instance, nuclear proliferation. Climate, I know, is something obviously that matters to you, as we've established from this book. We've just seen the British government vote through a new coal mine. I find that quite extraordinary. I wonder what your take on that is. Well, I do as well. I mean, we're supposed to be a country committed to net zero. The government's positioned itself and trumpets itself as a leading country to fight climate change. And so it should be, we all should be, to save our planet and ourselves. But a coal mine which is burning coal is one of the greatest emitters. And in any case, there are now, for steel production, which it's justified as being directed at, the coking coal, there are now greener ways of smelting steel and for steel manufacture. So it doesn't have to involve the use of coking coal. I think it's being done in order to bring jobs to a Conservative-held seat, which has traditionally also been a Labour seat, in the hope of winning votes. But I can't see how you can possibly justify this. No. I mean, another area that you were very involved in during your time in, in Cabinet was Northern Ireland. Yeah. And you have, uh, again, there's a, a lovely kind of connection to this book because you have an Irish, what do I call him? I always find it very difficult to use the word terrorist. I never know who i Hired I'm... gun. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he goes to South Africa. As you say, he's a hired gun. He does this. He then goes back home. But sort of on that subject, and I know we've spoken about this before, but Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol must be breaking your heart. It is. Brexit was always going to be extremely incendiary for Northern Ireland because the island of Ireland is divided down the middle by a border. The Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK for historic reasons, and then the Republic of Ireland to its south. And the borders are toxic 
thing, a symbol for nationalists who want to see the reunification of the island of Ireland. That's their whole mission. And they're pretty well half the population, the Catholic population. And so if there were ever to be a border down there resurrected, you would see a resurrection of the troubles, as they call them, of all the horror of the past, not necessarily on its horrific scale, but it would be it would be pretty pretty bad. And yet the external frontier of the European Union had to be somewhere. The Republic of Ireland stayed in the European Union. Uh, the UK left, much to my regret, and Northern Ireland was left with a border with the European Union, that's to say the Irish border with the Republic of Ireland, a member state, and then still being in the UK. So the border had to be somewhere. If it was going to be reincarnated across the, the island of Ireland, frankly, that would have been incendiary for the reasons I explained. So it had to go somewhere. And Boris Johnson chose to put it down on the Irish Sea, which, of course, has been very, very destabilizing and upsetting for unionist politicians whose whole raison d'etre, his whole mission is to maintain the union with the UK. And that's what the battle politically and religiously between Protestants and Catholics has, has always been about. And so the protocol was introduced as part of the Britain's withdrawal agreement from the European Union, signed up to the, by the British government as part of international law in order to try and solve that problem by, yes, having a a nominal border down the Irish Sea. That's to say, when goods came across from England, Scotland or Wales into Northern Ireland, then there'd have to be checks on them. It's a light-touch form of, of check, but it's too heavy and intrusive with all sorts of anomalies. I think, having sat on a Lord's Committee for over a year, that it's possible to solve this, but you have to have trust, and nobody trusts Britain anymore because it's threatening to renege on the treaty that it signed unilaterally. Well, who's going to trust anybody who does that as a yeah. government? International treaties are signed and then, you know, they're part of international law and we're just walking away from it. And so there's that problem. And also there's so much fundamentalism and dogmatism in the ruling parties, conservative parties' ranks. And I'm not making a Yabu party point, it's just a fact. Uh, that if they were willing to just have a bit of give and take, come off their ideological pedestals, realise there's a big problem to be solved here, which everybody knows, I think the problem can be solved. But not while people are sort of fixated on this thing called British sovereignty, you know, which was the whole driving force behind Brexit. Well, we ain't got much sovereignty, have we? <laughs> Either in the climate emergency, which it's impossible to have anyway, by definition, or even economically, because half our trade is tied up with Europe, and the British economy is in the worst state of the, the biggest OECD economies in the world because we've lost part of our biggest market. It's, I mean, you mentioned Boris Johnson, and I had to remind myself he is, in fact, three prime ministers ago. <laughs> yes, uh, and I don't know how many chancellors, but a few more of them. Quite extraordinary. But what I love about this book, though, is that you have brought all of that in. All the things that we're talking about are, are plot strands in this book, which just races along. What's next for you? Well, just as they wanted the elephant conspiracy in the year, they've not given me the deadline, but I'm, I'm 50,000 words into another one. It's a bit unformed at the moment, but uh, I'm making progress. Lord Peter Hayne, thank, <laughs> thank you so you. much. The Elephant Conspiracy by Peter Hayne is published by Muswell Press and it's out now. And you've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Emily Sands. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>